This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. When Ben first reached out, he's like, I have a guy who's disrupting, you know, the the, the life insurance space. Um, and it's something I think that a lot of, uh, especially millennials, probably don't think about, you know, like, obviously, we know it through our parents and stuff. But what, what got you into into this whole space? Yeah, so I've been working in insurance for a number of years. I started off as an actuary uh, about 10 years ago and then went into management consulting, but working exclusively with with big insurance companies. Um, and really what I uh, never really sold any insurance, never really worked on the distribution side of things, but knew the products very intimately and understood how they were priced, how the risk was assessed, and really the math behind what a life insurance product is. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was a huge disconnect between what the product is and how it was being marketed, right? And, and why people were buying it and what people were being sold on and how the recommendations were being calculated. And it just didn't line up with the pure objectives and the core aspects of the product. And that's where I saw the biggest gap and the biggest area to disrupt. So when we started this company as a life insurance broker, neither myself or my partner or really any of our first 10 hires had ever sold a life insurance product before. And right? this is purely... How do we think about this from a mathematical standpoint and build an entire new way of thinking about how to recommend a product, how to calculate a life insurance needs mm. um, without, without thinking through the typical sales, uh, sales methodologies associated with life insurance? Yeah, that, that's super interesting too. I mean, man, it's funny how many conversations I've had with entrepreneurs who, who tell me that as well. Like I have, I've never had any, any doing in this space or in the industry. Like yesterday, I was, I was talking to the co-founder of Starbucks and he said the exact same thing to me. He's like, I like, we, we didn't know shit about coffee. You know, the, the three co-founders who started the company, we just kind of, you know, we, so we saw a very, very critical pain point in Seattle. Um, so, and and that, that kind of makes me think like when you, when you were looking at it and studying it a bit more, one of the things you mentioned is, is how, how simplistic the formula is for calculating life insurance, which leads to a lot of people overpaying, right? Especially mm-hmm. in Canada. How, how did that, like, how did you figure that out? Um, was it research? Was it talking to people that, that were using it? Yeah. So, I mean, the hypothesis was driven just by looking at it. I mean, that was just saying, okay, I understand what a life insurance product is, but the, the, it's important to start at the objective of why you buy life insurance. And what it should be used for is to say, if I pass away, what does my family need to maintain my lifestyle? Exactly. I think other forms of insurance are a lot easier for people to comprehend, right? So you think about property insurance, for example, mm-hmm. what are you buying the policy for? You're buying it to replace the value of either your house burning down or your personal belongings being stolen. I mean, there's a very tangible number there, a very tangible very clear. item that you're replacing. But when it comes to life insurance, it's not so clear. What are you replacing? What is the value of a life? Um, what's, what's the loss to my family if I pass away? There is no clear cut answer to, to be able to drive at that, at that number. And, and I think what the industry has done for many, many years is say, okay, it's not a solvable problem. Well, what we do, what we can calculate, what is tangible is there's a loss of income. Right. If you pass away, the income that you're going to be earning in the future years, that income that your family is going to be relying upon, is no longer there. And that's the actual loss. And therefore, that's what we should replace. Hmm. It's very easy. It's very simple to explain. Uh, it, it kind of it makes sense intuitively when you think about the loss. But it actually doesn't align with the actual problem you're trying to solve, which is what does my family need to maintain their lifestyle? Right? And I'll give you an example that to really contextualize this. If you take two families, um, each primary income earner makes $50,000 a year. One has $500,000 of savings and there is no savings. If both those people pass away, their families are in very different situations. 
the amount of money that those two people's families would need is very different. And if you just look at income, you're going to arrive at the exact same answer on the life insurance need. And that's what the industry has done. It says, we're going to look at income. We're going to multiply income because that's the loss and that's the need. And that's where you look at and you say, okay, there's a clear disconnect here. It's not accurately calculating the, the issue uh, or the problem. Some people are going to be getting more coverage they need. Some people might be getting less coverage than they need. It's just you're, there's a complete disconnect between what you should be calculating and how you're doing the calculation. And what different, like, I mean, just on that topic, uh, if, if I go, let's say, to policy me, um, and I'm using the algo there, like, what other variables are you including aside from just income? Yeah, yeah. So what we actually look at, the, the, the biggest difference in the calculation, um, and the simplest way to explain it is that we actually, we're a cost-based formula. So what that means is we're not just looking at what you're losing from an income perspective, we're looking at what your family would be spending, right? So we're understanding, we're using all these calculations behind the scenes, comparing what you spend to what other Canadians spend, looking at all tax data that we pulled from the CRA, all public data that we were able to pull and running regression analysis to come up with our formulas there and really looking at, okay, can we really understand what it is that your family would spend year by year if you passed away tomorrow until your kids are independent, until your partner um, reaches their life expectancy, how much money is going to be spent assuming a similar lifestyle? And then let's overlay the, the on tops. Okay, so we know what they're going to spend or well, what do they have available? Do you have any savings in place? Could that savings be used to cover some of those costs? Are some of those savings retirement savings? If so, you can't just pull them all out on day one because then you pay a lot of taxes. So when's the right time for your partner to, pay, to pull out retirement savings or RRSPs and things like that? What income does your partner earn? Will that continue? If so, that can be used to cover some of these expenses. What retirement benefits will kick in? Are there pension plans? Are there social government retirement benefits? So really building a complete financial picture of what will your family spend and what will your family have available to them and therefore what's the gap. Right. And that's how we arrive at how much were they really relying upon your future income. It might be zero. It might be significant. You don't really know just by looking at income. You have to build that picture. So to answer your initial question, initially we hypothesized that this has to be a better way to, to do it. And we spent months and months and months building these formulas, doing all this before you even sold the policy and really arriving at this answer. And now what we've done over the last year and a half since being in the market is we, we collect, when someone comes through our platform, we run those algorithms and those calculations for them, but we also ask them how much coverage they currently have. Because that's a very important number in understanding what to get, because if we tell you, okay, you need 500,000 of coverage, or we know you already have 400,000, we're not gonna tell you to buy 500,000 more, we're gonna tell you to buy 100,000 more. So through that, we've been able to collect what existing coverage people have, where did they buy it from, uh, and how much were they recommended, and we can compare the difference of what, are, what, are, what do our algorithms suggest you should be buying, what do you already have in place, and what we found through that analysis is there's a huge disconnect there, and most people who have bought insurance have bought more than they probably should have. What happens if, so that, I mean, let, let's take that scenario where someone is overpaying with their current plan, they go to policy mean they're like, oh shit, I'm getting screwed. Well, you know, what, what do I do then? Am I able to shift plans or like what's? Yeah, at, at, at that stage, um, so there's a few, there's a few things. If you're, if you're looking at the exact same plan where you say, you know what, I had a 10 year policy um, and I bought it a month ago or four months ago and now here's a new 10 year policy, it's the exact same thing and it's a lower price, pretty obvious, right? Cancel what you had and buy the cheaper one. However, there, there is, it does get quite, Complicated. I don't want to say complicated. It gets a little bit trickier mm-hmm. if More the policy has been in place for a little bit of time. And that's just because of the way life insurance is priced. So 
the way life insurance works is you're taking on a 10-year policy. You're actually just taking, you can think of it as 10 individual one-year policies. For every year in your life, the yeah. probability of you passing away increases, right? So technically, your risk level of, your, of dying is higher year by year. So when you buy a 10-year policy, what the insurance company is doing is calculating those 10 years, taking the average and giving you a flat line premium that doesn't change year by year. Okay. So in the early years, you're actually overpaying for insurance, right? Because your probability of death is lower than your average over the 10 years, but your premium is higher. And in the later years, you're underpaying. So what happens is once you get in to start paying for a policy, if you just cancel, you lose all that overpayment. So it's not always, when you're starting from scratch, yes, we can definitely recommend you. Here's what you should buy. Right. When you already have an existing policy, you need to, there's further math to be done to understand, okay, you made a bad purchase probably wasn't the best thing to buy, but at this stage, what do you do? And this canceling it and replacing it is not always the answer. So at that point, what we recommend is if it is a trickier situation like that, book a call with one of our advisors. We'll analyze the, the, the policies for you and give you a recommendation. It is something that we're working on building into our automated platform where we do that math for you live on the spot and give you a set of recommendations, either replace, uh, cancel, replace, don't do anything, replace and actually do nothing because you don't need coverage or buy an entirely new policy. So it is something that we're working on, but for now we say, call one, book a call with one of our advisors. It's all right there, easy to do, and we'll analyze those policies for you. Do you ever um, think of, I mean, I have obviously so many questions now, but because um, this is obviously very interesting. And I think for, like take someone who's in their mid twenties, right? Or let's say early thirties. Is that a good time to start thinking about life insurance for themselves? Because usually the stigma is, right? Like when you're kind of older, I mean, very few people I know you know, in their mid kind of late twenties are thinking about life insurance. I, I might be wrong, but, but that's, it's never like a hot topic, right? I mean, we think of yeah. stocks, real estate, gold, like th- these are certain things that get flown around, but life insurance yeah. is, is not always the one. Yeah. I mean, it, the reason why it is it's tough like that is because it's something that you're never going to see the benefit from, right? Either, either it's going to expire <laughs> worthless or you're going to die. So um, it's, it's not something that you're going to see yourself and it becomes, difficult, right? When you're struggling financially, when you're looking to pay off debt, when you're trying to buy a house and provide, it's it's hard to really say, okay, this is something that I actually need. Most people think they're, no one thinks about their own mortality. No one thinks they're going to die tomorrow. Why protect something that you don't really think about, right? So that's the challenge, I think, with the industry. Um, Now, to answer your question more directly, with life, life insurance, you really only need the product if you have financial dependence. In other words, going back to my question that I talked about earlier, if you asked the question and said, if I die tomorrow, is someone's life going to be impacted financially? If the answer is yes, then you need life insurance. Uh, and that usually means you have a, a partner um, or you have uh, children um, and not like a ton of savings, which is pretty much anyone who has a partner or kids in, in their 20s and 30s, right? So at that point, it, it becomes, okay, you should really look, take a look, understand what you need. Right. Uh, and that's where I recommend, like, if that's your situation, you should definitely be looking at this. Now, the other side of the coin is, should I be looking at it beforehand? Right? Should I be looking, if I'm healthy, mm-hmm. 25 years old, single, like, do I need life insurance? The quick answer is no, because again, if you pass away tomorrow, nothing is going to happen. Now, where it gets a little bit complicated is um, there's another risk that's kind of lumped into a life insurance policy. And that is what happens if I get sick in the next few years and then need life insurance, will I be able to buy? Right. So because then your risk 20, goes up, right? Is exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. So your price is locked in 
based on your health when you apply. So whatever happens between when you apply and accept your policy to the end of the term, from a health perspective, does not affect your price. So what you're doing is you're essentially locking in a price early. The big problem with that is you're forced to buy life insurance for something that you don't need in order to protect against that risk of getting sick. So you've taken two completely independent risks. One's actually dying and one's getting sick um, and and having your life insurance premiums go up. You've lumped them together into one policy and the industry says, if you want to cover this, you got to cover both. Right. And it's tough. It's like buying a car where you, where you might not want all the different features, but the car company says, sorry, we only have one available. It's the luxury package and includes a bigger engine, leather, everything you can buy. If you want the actual core car, we're forcing you to buy the complete package. Um, and it's, it's really a shame because that actual risk of getting sick is, is, is not, it should be much cheaper than a, if that's all you cared about, um, then that would be a lot cheaper. And that's something that we want to do as a company. Uh, is actually build out new products like that, where we say, here's here's the product. If you pass away in the next couple of years, you get nothing. Right? Your family doesn't need any money. You don't need that protection. But if you happen to, if your health deteriorates in the next few years, we're going to guarantee that you can buy a life insurance policy in four or five years when you do have kids at your health today. Mm-hmm. And that would be a very valuable product for people who, who don't need coverage right now. And that would be quite cheap for a life insurance company to price uh, and, uh, and, and insure. Um, there's a number of reasons why it doesn't exist today, but uh, there are things that, that we're looking to solve. And as we kind of mature as a company, um, those, that's definitely the area we want to get into in the product set. So who exactly is the target audience in this case? Because like, if you go to the site, I'm assuming, you know, people in their eighties are not, are not going, I, I might be wrong, but just curious about like demographics, who you're seeing actually leverage the platform mostly. Yeah. So just, just to answer the quick question on the 80s. So I, I firmly believe that if you're past retirement or approaching retirement, you no longer have a life insurance need. Um, if, if you don't have enough money in place at that point to cover your retirement and your partner's retirement, um, then there's a different issue, right? So all we're really talking about here is covering, the, again, the purpose of life insurance is to cover your family's needs, not even yours, because you wouldn't be around. So if you can't do that, then, then there's a whole other issue with being able to retire. So anyone who's post-retirement, I mean, there are brokers who argue there's tax certain policies that are set up to save on taxes. That's why I ask, yeah, towards certain things like that. Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't think they're worth it. I think it's when you actually compare the math of those policies versus investing in other ways outside your policy and what the commissions are to your broker versus what you're saving on taxes and the liquidity that, that you lose by buying a life insurance policy, it rarely makes sense. So uh, we focus purely on the protection aspects of where is there a need where if that person passes away, someone suffering financially. And the sweet spot for that tends to be um, when young people who are starting a family, so call it anywhere from 30 to 35, up to around 45 to 50, I would say is our sweet spot. We do sell quite a few policies unexpectedly um, to people up, uh, in their 50s who are looking to who still have a, a remaining need and maybe it's their second policy or they're replacing a policy. Um, they, they're not necessarily people who are looking for a technology solution, but They've come to our site, appreciate the honest approach, the advice, uh, and how easy we've made it to, to then convert that into to buying the policy. Um, but yeah, our core, like we, we thought initially our core customers are really going to be these tech savvy people who don't want to talk to a broker and really just want to do things conveniently. And what we've actually found is it's, it's those people, but it's also a lot of people who didn't even think they wanted to buy online, but really were just looking for a better recommendation and the more honest approach, uh, and ended up finding us and, and, and stuck with us. 
And is is it true that um, so I was reading this this I was reading a bit more on, on life insurance lately, uh, just out of curiosity. Like uh, this is why I'm, I'm so curious about the topic and it's well timed. Um, but but I was reading basically like to your point. So let's say I get to the ten year, right? You were saying it was tranches of ten years. Let's yep. say I save up and I was co- contributing every month, say 150 bucks, 200 bucks. I get to the 10 years. I'm, you know, I'm still alive. Uh, do I get the money back? Like if I wanted to go to a different plan, what happens in that case? Yep. So there are different types of insurance. The typical term product, um, 10 years are up, you're done. The policy is over. Um, you don't get any return. Mm-hmm. Now, these policies all have a feature in them that's called a guaranteed renewability feature. And what that says is, at the end of the 10 years, we're, us as an insurance company, we're going to guarantee that you can renew that policy for another 10 years at a set amount where you don't, you no longer, you, you don't have to prove your health again. That's mm-hmm. what it all comes down to with life insurance is usually like, are you so healthy? Because remember, we're pricing you, we're underwriting you based on your health when you apply. And this, this policy is after 10 years, we're not going to look at your health again. We're going to guarantee a specific rate for you to, to uh, get a new policy. Now, the caveat is, that guaranteed rate is extremely high uh, because we're saying, look, I'll give you that guarantee now and then in 10 years, I'll let you re-up. But I need to be careful because what, what's going to happen is something called anti-selection, which means people who are in good risk are just going to go get a new policy. And people who are bad risk, meaning who, whose health has deteriorated in the 10 years, are going to be the ones that re-up. What I'm going to be left with as an insurance company is this whole set of bad risk. Um, and the way insurance companies are able to run their businesses by something called the law of large numbers, where you're underwriting a group of people and you're underwriting the average. And over time, you flip a coin a million times, but 50% are going to be hit. You flip a coin five times, like who knows, right? So that's kind of how it works. And, and, and when they start getting these anti-selection, the bad risk, they're in trouble. So that's why they charge a huge amount for that renewal. So the, the takeaway there is really, unless you're at a point where after the 10 years, you're uninsurable, meaning Something's happened to your health where no one's going to give you coverage. Don't renew. Your best bet at that point is to, is to either, if you, if you still need coverage after the 10 years, get an entirely new policy. Even if there is a bit of a health issue, it's still going to be cheaper than, than renewing your yes. existing one. Um, but so that, that kind of leads, it, it kind of leads to the next point here, which is picking the policy length is extremely important, right? Because at the end of the 10 years, if you still need coverage, if you're healthy, like, great, you're going to get a new policy, it's going to be cheap. Um, but if you're not healthy, it could be really expensive to get that new 10 year policy. So the point there is you need to be very careful on how long you're insuring. So the obvious answer is, oh, why not just get like a 20 year policy, a 30 year policy, like why stop it at 10? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, then you're overpaying. Because remember what I said earlier, you're, well, you're, the way life insurance is priced is you're taking the average price over the length of your policy. And as you get older, your premium would go up because your probability of death is going up. So if you insure for 30 years, you're going to pay a lot more per year than if you insure for 10 years. And if you only need the product for 10 years, then don't buy it for 30. So our algorithms do that also. We don't just look at what if you passed away tomorrow, how much would you need? We look at what happens if you live for 10 more years and then passed away? What's the need then for 20 years? And we, we pinpoint what's that point in time where we think your life insurance need will no longer be there. And therefore, we can give you a recommendation on how long to, to ensure. Again, with keeping in mind our goal is to give your family full protection at the cheapest possible price. That's our objective um, as a company. So, so is it similar to like a good buddy of mine is the founder of Lowest Rates, who you might know. 
um, Justin Thuin, shout out. Um, but but he does something really cool. Like, I mean, obviously their platform is more focused on mortgages or or, or uh, on the auto sector. Is that kind of the, the purpose? At, at, I mean, at this point, it's more of a recommendation of the best plan. Uh, and then you guys kind of pinpoint them to the right issuer. Is that right? Is that right? So, uh, so we're actually, we're, we're the full broker, right? So what we've talked about on this call so far on the, is really the initial aspect of what we do, right? And I would say like that's a big differentiator in the market. But from there, we don't stop. So we give you your recognition and now we're tied in with all different carriers and we say, okay, now here's all your quotes. So we've told you what you need, yeah. right? Here's all different quotes. Let's find the carrier who's pricing your particular policy most competitively. And, and it I is do. different. Yeah. And we're actually, and you can apply for that policy directly on our site. Exactly. So we've taken all the messy aspects of a life insurance application that you'd have to go through with a typical broker. And we've completely transformed that onto our website where we deal with all the pain points behind the scenes. We make a very seamless experience for you to apply for your policy. Um, a company like, like lowest rates, um, it, it's very different in the sense that their, their goal, they're, they're showing you quotes, right? If you want to go find a quote, if you want to price off your insurance. Like- yeah. You know what you need. You say, I, I need a $500,000 term time policy. That's a great site. They're going to give you a bunch of different rates. Um, but that's where it'll leave you. And, and, and you from there, um, when you leave your phone number, or your email, you'll, you'll get deferred to, uh, a broker that they're essentially working with, right? Who isn't necessarily the lowest rate employee, but is, is buying the leads from their website. Whereas we're kind of processing the entire sale on our platform. So we're not kicking you out to a different company different broker. You're not going to get a phone call for us tomorrow because we showed you a rate. You're going to come start to finish all the way through our platform if you wish. Uh, and, and we'll get you that policy issued and then we'll be your broker from there on. I'm not even just ending it issuing. And, and is, is the platform open to all kinds of carriers or are you also vetting them beforehand? Like you, you're kind of being selective of who you want to represent. Yep. So we're, we are selective. Um, and essentially the criteria is very simple. Um, these products, despite what the insurance companies will tell you, these term insurance products are essentially the exact same across every carrier. There are very minor differences in some of the conversion options and a conversion option that says, I can convert my 10-year policy to a 20-year policy or my 10-year policy to a permanent policy. There's very minor differences between the insurance carriers, that, but more or less, um, those features are, are not, uh, not they, they, do, they do come in place for some customers, but for the most part, they're, they're not that valuable for particular customers. And uh, with that in mind, the, the products are essentially the same. So what we look at is who's offering the best prices, right? We want to make sure we get a good mix of the carriers who are typically low. Um, and it's, and it's, it's different. It's not like one's always cheapest. The five variables are coverage amount, term length, age, gender, smoking status. For any five, for any combination of those five variables, a different insurance company will be the, the cheapest. So supporting a good mix of the ones that tend to be lower cost. And then secondly, who's going to enable us to provide that digital experience, right? There are certain carriers who have told us, and it's starting to change now with COVID, but two years ago we said, sorry, we need every uh, customer to sign their application with a pen and mail it in. And we will not accept an application unless that happens. So right away we're saying like, sorry, you're off our platform. We're not, we're not creating a flow where we need to then print things, mail them to customers, have them mail them, but it just doesn't work. So we've, we designed like kind of our ideal customer experience and how we can remove all the pain points. And then we found the insurance companies that A, have the best prices and B, will allow for that type of process. And we've had to be very creative about what we mean by allow, how we kind of work our way into 
in that process while still complying with all the regulations and all their internal uh, processes. Um, and that's kind of been the challenge to date is finding those carriers and being able to build out that process where we're not losing customers and we're not providing a bad customer experience because the carrier is forcing us to do something that really shouldn't be done. Hmm. And, and stepping maybe just quickly to, to the marketing side, um, like, you know, obviously this thing is quite emotional, right? I mean, similar to like Wills, I know Aaron, Aaron and, um, you know, I think they're working on, on Willful on that side. It's kind of a similar context in terms of when you sell that, like it's kind of a morbid experience unless you look at it differently. You know, first impression, it feels like that. But once you kind of get in the nitty gritty, you're like, you know what? This actually makes a lot of sense. You broke it down. Uh, so just curious, how do you guys approach that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the challenge, right? And if I knew, if I had the answer to that, <laughs> we'd be a $5 billion company. It, it, I mean, it's it's tough. We, I think we've, we're starting to really find, um, really learn and find good ways to market the product. Um, and it, it, look, I mean, I... I'm, I'm the last person who tries to sell something emotionally. Um, the lot, like I know a lot of, a lot of brokers techniques are to really, and you'll see a lot of TV commercials where it's really getting on the emotional mm. aspects of the product. I mean, that's one, that's certainly one way to do it because it is like, when you think about what you're doing, like you are protecting your family, right? And, and, and it's a very selfless act and it's a very important thing to do. Uh, and just like you would buy, like you would make sure you have an alarm system in your house or smoke detectors in your house. Like the reason why you do that is largely to protect your family. It's just sometimes it's harder to see that connection with life insurance, but that's what you're doing. Um, so it is one way. I mean, we try and really focus on like, we try less about selling you need life insurance. Um, so we're not trying to convince you to buy life insurance. We're trying to convince you once you know you need it, like you should be getting it from us. And, and so, to buy the right plan, right? Versus, yeah. yeah, I get you. Right. And, and here's why I come to us and not someone else. Like, so you've already kind of made the decision that life insurance thing you've heard about, something that you think you need, you're not entirely sure. I'm not convincing you that you should look at life insurance. You've kind of already done that. Now, here's why you should come to our platform, right? We're going to give you an honest recognition. 26% of the users who go to our platform, the recognition is don't buy life insurance uh, because our algorithms and, and, and everything that we've looked at about you suggests that there's no one who's going to suffer financially from your lot or from your loss. And if there are, there's enough savings and future income from your spouse available to pay for that. Mm. Um, so that very objective approach, we're going to look at, we're, we're very agnostic and unbiased with the carriers we choose. We're not picking carriers based on who's giving us a bigger commission. Um, we've provided an extremely uh, easy process. And, and believe me, it is, it is quite painful to get through a life insurance application. Um, so really, streamlining that process uh, makes it way easier for you full updates along the way good transparent communication throughout the process uh, and really provide that whole package we think we have a lot of value that we can provide uh, versus our competitors and that's kind of the angle that we take with our marketing so it's less about like oh go buy life insurance it's more about okay come take a look at our site see if you need it um, and, and go, we'll go from there did you have to raise any money? I mean, from, from a startup perspective, did you guys raise any money? What's going on on that side? Yep. So we, we did our first friends and family round in summer 2018. We raised about $500,000 there. And then we closed a seed round in January, February for $3.3 million um, okay. from two, two different funds, a Canadian fund um, and a U.S. fund, uh, each kind of split the round. Was the process of talking to investors about this different like, did, did you, was there more of a learning curve, I mean, or, or was it kind of seemed like, did they, did they understand the story very quickly or? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's different with every, with, with every investor. I think a lot of them, 
a lot of them appreciated the the kind of knowledge that we had in, in the industry and, and our ability to kind of look at it differently than a lot of other people would um, and saw, saw value there. The struggle for us, to be completely honest, um, in going and talking to some U.S. investors was they would look at us and say, if you're not in the U.S., why are we even talking, right? And I think that's a common reaction from a lot of U.S. VCs where that applies to a lot of different industries where I mean, the U.S. is 10 times the size of Canada. It's a much bigger opportunity. If you're looking to build a billion-dollar business like the VCs are really trying to, to judge you on, that's where you need to be. But for us, that, that wasn't our story. Um, we have no plans of moving for the U.S. We think that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of work to be done here in Canada. Uh, and that's really our goal is to, is to continue to, to build and, and improve our products, improve our features, improve our customer experience, and not worry about geographical expansion and, and focusing our efforts on kind of building what we already have somewhere else. We think there's still a lot more opportunity here. And I think that was, that was part of the challenge, uh, getting some of the VCs on board with, hey, financial institutions do, Canadian financial institution companies do very well globally. I mean, there's, if you look at a lot of the big banks, um, there's good branding, there's good trust in these companies. It would be foolish for us to try and expand too early and we really need to be laser focused on Canada. And if you can't see that value and believe in our, in what we see here, then you're not the right partner. Uh, and that's a lot where a lot of the conversations went to be, to be frank. And, and there were, there were, we found the right ones after looking for, for quite a while, um, where they believed in our vision, believed in what we wanted to do. And, and that's when we signed the term sheets. Did they not have that, like the, the, the one uh, USVC that, that signed on, did they not have that kind of strict uh, view of the US expansion, I guess? No, I mean, they understood. They saw the numbers, they saw the projections, they understood uh, like how big the market could be, how big the market is for life insurance in Canada. Um, again, maybe looking at other industries in Canada, you can, that makes sense. And as a VC, maybe you're just inherently trained on, okay, not in Canada, not interested, but they were able to see through it um, and they saw what we were doing, they really believed in the value we were adding for our customers and, and the potential and what we were building and, and the way our business had been growing. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty quick set of conversations with them, actually. Yeah, it, maybe one or two conversations and they were in. Yeah, sometimes uh, US money travels a bit quicker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think we can all vouch for that. Uh, yeah. the, the one interesting thing, too, is like the platform in many ways is also a marketplace. I'm not sure if, if you view it that way, but obviously, like, uh, this is kind of a, you're, you're monetizing, I'm assuming, actually, this, this is one question. Are you monetizing mostly from a B2C channel or from a B2B or a mix? So we, our, our revenue model is exactly the same as a traditional life insurance broker. There's, okay. there's a ton of regulation in Canada, uh, something that I'd actually like to see change that really controls how a broker can make money. So gotcha. insurance companies sell these products, they set the commissions, that commission has to be the same with whatever broker sells it. And I can't say, oh, I made $500 off your sale. We only really need two, 300 for our business to work. Customer here's 200 back. If we did that, we would lose our license. So we are extremely limited. Um, essentially, we have no options in terms of how we have to change the revenue model from that perspective. Um, so the way we get paid is the customer pays us nothing. The customer pays the, the insurance company if they buy a product. And then the insurance company pays us back a commission uh, distribution for, for selling that product. Now, we, we, we're really trying to figure out, and we have this conversation at least once a month, of how can we move towards 
more of a fee-based model where mm. our, our revenue is flat. It's not based on the size of the policy. We know inherently when we put all these controls in place to make sure that we're not recommending based on commission. Um, our algorithms are designed completely agnostic of price. Uh, are any advisors that we do have on staff are there to answer questions? They're all salaried. They don't make any commission, any bonuses, nothing. They're pure salary. Uh, their job is not to find customers, not to upsell. Their job is to take inbound questions uh, and help customers through the process who have already self kind of gone through it on their own and realize that, hey, they, they need some help along the way and they want to speak to someone. Our advisors will then come in uh, and help you get through but they're not uh, there to, to oversell it all. So, I mean, we've done it from a cultural perspective and an operational perspective, not let that commission impact the advice and the guidance, mm-hmm. but I would love to be able to just, one thing to take our word on it is another thing to actually be able to say we're actually not even paid that way. Um, so that's something that we're working on. Again, it's, it's definitely an uphill battle to get there, but I think that's the regulation that needs to change. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But it's, I guess you still have kind of the, the chicken and egg problem, right? The famous one about marketplaces, because even if so, so even if you're more B2B uh, to, to incentivize the carriers, they want to see people on the platform as well. And people want to see carriers and they also want to see the, the value of, of using this tech versus going through traditional paper based model, right? Yeah, it's a little bit different for life insurance, because from like a carrier perspective, there's no cost to them to be on our platform. That's um, It's kind right? of, so they're, yeah. yeah, like they're like, we get calls. We didn't so much in the beginning, but I would say now I get at least, we get at least two emails to our general inbox a week from different insurance carriers. Hey, they have you heard about our product? Like we'd love to get used to sell our product. Right. So, I mean, that's how the insurance industry works where I guess every broker is technically a marketplace in the sense that they have access to different carriers. And carriers have teams of people who work for them, who they're called whole, internal wholesalers. And their job is to convince these independent brokers to sell their product. So there's no real issue there. I mean, um, again, there's no cost to them. At this stage, given our size and the amount of policies that we sell a month, carriers are now willing to actually build out specific uh, processes for us. Right to make our make our, our business integrate a little better with theirs, which is which is definitely a positive. So that's I guess where a little bit of cost comes from them. But I mean we're already at a point now where we're selling three three hundred and fifty policies a month. Um, so we're we're doing I mean it's it's quite a bit of business from a for a brokerage to be doing. Uh, and now we're we're getting that leverage and that scale where we can start to influence uh, and have some control over those conversations with carriers and say. Hey, here's the reason why you weren't on our platform because this part of your process doesn't work with us. If you're willing to adapt that uh, and make some changes, um, then we can put you on our platform. And those are the conversations we're having now and, and that have been successful. Did you by any chance see, see an uplift in, in traction when the pandemic hit? Like were people more concerned about this? Yeah, so we did. I mean, we, we did grow quite a bit um, since February, March. So some of that is attributed to just I mean, we closed our funding round. We put more into marketing. We've really been working over the last six months on building a lot of capabilities that have kind right. of come in. And part of that is as well, just the increase in demand. Um, the insurance industry as a whole, uh, believe it or not, has actually seen a decrease in volume, but we've seen a huge increase. So my perspective there, and we, and we did a survey on this um, a couple months ago, which I can, I can share with you. 
is that the demand went up. Uh, there were certainly more people thinking about the product. Our survey showed that it wasn't just from people now being more aware of their, of their mortality. It was also just um, people thinking about, well, what if I lose my job? I have benefits through work where I might have life insurance coverage. So there's a number of factors and it's all in our survey there that um, contributed to the increase in demand. And I, and I think we were just so well positioned um, to be able to handle that demand, one, from a volume perspective, but two, just from the way our business was built. We had never met with a customer in person uh, before the pandemic. I mean, that just wasn't our business model. So our business model did not have to change at all pre and post pandemic, whereas uh, traditional brokers and insurance companies who were selling to, to, to customers, their infrastructure and the way they'd done their business before just did not work, right? So. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to, uh, certainly don't want to compare myself to Amazon, but thinking about in that sense where they're a retailer that was already designed for this, where they didn't have to change their business model at all to continue operating, where all the brick and mortar stores did. So even if you can argue there wasn't an increase in retail sales, it probably was a decrease in retail sales um, when the pandemic hit, they were still seeing a big bump because they were taking a lot of the business from other stores who, who could not operate um, or had to make a lot of changes to their business model to be able to operate. And I would say that a very similar thing happened with us in terms of we were able to capture a lot of the increased demand because we did not have to make any changes. And when did you start seeing track? Like when you started this, this thing from, from, the, from the ground up, when did you see that tra- traction really come through and, and maybe that, that tipping point, what, you know? Yeah, so we, we launched our, we, we incorporated the company, left our jobs in March, 2018. Uh, and then in October, what were you doing? I was a management consultant. Okay. So I was working, I was actually mainly in New York. I was working with a company called Oliver Wyman. I was based in Toronto, but my clients were, were almost all in the U.S. So I spent a lot of time pretty much week by week on a plane back and forth to, to different U.S. cities. Uh, did that for about seven years and really just had enough of that lifestyle. But it was an incredible learning experience for me. And I, I don't think there's anything I could have done to set me up better for what I'm doing now. Uh, but, but yeah, so we, we started in March. We had our first soft launch in October um, where we just launched. We didn't do any marketing. It was really just testing, get our, get our uh, product out there, really learn what was working. Uh, in January, we started to see a little bit of traction. Um, that was the first time we were actually getting, doing some marketing, getting people onto our platform, seeing some uh, direct traffic, so traffic where we didn't know where that was coming from. So that was you never, you always want to be able to attribute all your traffic, but it is nice to see that you're getting uh, traffic from word of mouth and spread mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and then I would say in July, August, we saw quite a bit bump. This is July, August, 2019. And then it, and then it kind of went down a little bit. Um, and the end of 2019, to, to be honest, like it was a struggle. We were going through a fundraise. Um, we were, we were severely understaffed. Um, we had, I think, seven or eight people at that time, three of which were interns. Uh, and, and it was difficult, right? I, I was on the road. I was in San Francisco and New York. I was traveling all over the place for a few months um, trying to fundraise. Um, the numbers weren't. Part of it was a lot of our marketing was digital and digital marketing becomes very expensive in around November time, October, November, December with Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. So it was hard to get the same returns on our, our investment spend or on our marketing spend. Uh, and it, it was tough. It was tough. And I think we, we got through it. We found the right partners. We, we closed our fundraising um, and we, we really expanded our team. We filled in gaps that were, were very much needed uh, on all parts, on the engineering side, on the marketing side, on the customer success side. And things really started to click 
in early 2020, even prior to the pandemic. Uh, and we've really kind of, we've been growing at 20, 30, 40% a month, depending on the month ever since January. So we've seen huge growth in 2020. Uh, and it's been really nice to see all the hard work and all the value we knew we were adding for customers really start to come through in our numbers and, and in our uh, in our production. Yeah, that would do, like the, the the value of the shadow, man. That that's what uh, a lot of founders go through. And Reid Hoffman always talks about that, which is kind of cool to hear that that you guys came out of that uh, from a from a positive perspective. And then curious now, like just uh, as a final wrap up, you know, uh, I think it's been roughly two and a half years, right? Um, since since the launch, is that? Yeah. Since we, yeah, two, about, since the launch of our product, uh, about a year and a half, but since yeah. we started the company, yeah, over two years. Over two years. Yeah. So yeah. you went through that process. If someone comes to you today and says, hey, uh, you know, Andrew, I'm looking to start something similar to policy, me, not like, obviously not, not the same business, yeah. but something, something uh, as a venture, what, what would that advice be to that person? Yeah. Well, my first piece of advice would be like, find a partner, find someone that you trust, what? who's, Smart, um, whether they have the same skill set or a different skill set, I don't think really matters. A lot of people will say, find someone with complementary skills where you can do one thing, they can do the other. I'm not sure that really matters. I think you just need someone who's smart, hardworking, and you really trust because it is a grind. Um, there's so much to be thinking about. If you don't, you can give an employee equity, and we certainly do give that to all our employees, but no one will ever care as much as your business as a founder and an owner. And if you don't have multiple people, one partner, maybe even two partners, I have two partners who are worrying about the business and concerned about the business with the same level of attention and ownership as you are, it's going to be a grind. It's going to be difficult. So that's my, that would be my first piece of advice. Um, a lot of people get caught up on, oh, I don't want to start off with 33%. I haven't even incorporated that. I'm already down to 33%. I had this idea. It was my idea. <laughs> but fight over that. Uh, yeah, I, I can tell you, like, you, you need those people on your side um, who care as much as you do. Even as simple as when I was out fundraising, just knowing that I didn't need to be involved in the day-to-day, uh, I, can, I can miss a week and, and things would be fine. Or even now, we have, we have 24 employees now. Um, and just knowing that, like, I don't need to be managing everyone. I mean, we, there's other people who are thinking about it. And we do have good managers above lower who we've been very intentional on who we've hired and, and who have been really great. Uh, and, and that's also extremely important, but just having different people who own the company and, and care of it in the same way is so, so valuable. Hmm. So that would be my number one uh, piece of advice. Um, it makes me and, think of, uh, especially when you're talking about finding people and sticking together like versus having that ego. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're a UFC fan, but um, Dana White always talks about this. Like he still to this day owns like less than 10% of the UFC. And never mm-hmm. once went to the Fertitta brothers and was like, Hey dude, like this, this thing's like a four or $5 billion company. You know, you should up my, my, my equity or ownership in this, in this yeah. business. You know, he's like, and imagine how many bands or how many companies fall apart just because of this, this one scenario. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's not worth trying to do it on your own. It, it really isn't. Um, it's just, there's just so many uphill battles as a startup. There's so many challenges. The second you start getting any try, first of all, getting some traction. To figure it out. And then as soon as you do, everyone's trying to attack you. Other companies are trying to build the same thing as you. In turn, the big incumbents are trying to figure out like why you shouldn't succeed. It's just, it feels like everyone has it out for you and everyone's trying to prevent you. Uh, there's so many things against you trying to succeed. So it just have, even just the emotional support of those couple of people is, is, is very valuable. But yeah, the trust uh, and having 
multiple people working on the same problem who care just as much as it's critical. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.